The scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. All my affairs shall Tychicus make known to you, the beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our state and that he may comfort your hearts, together with Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They shall make known to you all things that are here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salutes you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you receive commandments, if he comes to you, receive him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. These only are fellow workers for the kingdom of God, men who have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, salutes you, always striving for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has much labor for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas salute you. Salute the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos in the assembly that is in their house. And when this letter has been read among you, cause it to be read also in the assembly of the Laodiceans, and that you also read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry that you have received in the Lord, that you fulfill it. The salutation of me, Paul, with my own hand. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word and that you have revealed to us your will in it. And we thank you for these closing words to the Colossians that are set before us this day. Indeed, may they be used to strengthen us in our faith, to direct us to Christ our Savior and King and the calling which you have placed upon each and every one of us as your people. Guide us and direct us now, strengthen us by your Spirit, and give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that understand and perceive this your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You might be inclined to think that as we come to the close of Paul's letter to the Colossians, that his teaching is finished, that he's just exchanging pleasantries after a fashion, just giving bare pieces of information that don't really have much to do with us today. And there is a sense in which he's following the typical letter-writing protocol of his day with these closing or final greetings. But certainly we can expect that there's more here than mere information, which we might deem as irrelevant at first glance, knowing that the Holy Spirit doesn't waste a single word in the Bible. No, even here in a portion of Scripture like this, I trust that we will find the Word of God to be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Upon a more careful examination of the names that are listed here and the comments that Paul does make, we have a fascinating picture of some of the inner dynamics of the early church, as well as further application of the theology that Paul has expounded upon throughout. Still more, we have a clearer picture of Paul the Apostle himself and the kind of man that he was, which may be contrary to some of the stereotypes that have been subsequently associated with him. Not surprisingly, there is a sense in which Paul ends where he began with grace, but also builds upon the instruction he's imparted to these Colossian believers, even as applied in these last remarks 
which include a handful of final commands. Now, as we begin to consider this last section of the letter, during the reading just a few moments ago, you invariably noticed the litany of names that are found here. And when you count up the number of names as they relate to specific people to whom Paul refers, plus Paul himself, the total number is 12. Jesus' justice in verse 11 counts as one. Of course, the number 12 makes us think of the 12 tribes of Israel, as well as the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And so it's, it's interesting for that theme to be subtly present here. The structure for this concluding section is typically broke, broken down into four, uh, verses 7 through 9, 10 to 14, 15 to 17, and then verse 18. I suppose that's as good as any, though I wonder if verses 12 to 14 couldn't be considered a section of their own. Well, Paul starts in verses 7 and 9 by saying, All things according to me will make known Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful deacon and fellow slave in the Lord, whom I sent to you in him this, that it might be made known to you the things concerning us, and he might encourage the hearts of you, with Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother, who is from you. All to you they will make known things here. So Tychicus or Tychicus is going to give an in-person report of all that's going on with Paul. And hopefully you heard the threefold use of the verb make known. Paul has used that same verb back in chapter 1 and verse 27 when he wrote regarding the saints, to whom God will to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery in the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory. The gospel has been closed to these Colossian, disclosed to these Colossian believers and Paul's ministry of the gospel is going to be disclosed to these believers. And so there's a sense where they, they, just, they overlap significantly. I think a good case can be made for a chiastic structure in verses 7 through 9. Begins and ends with all things being made known. Then there's the mention of Tychicus and Onesimus with respective appellations. Paul, with the respective appellations Paul associates with them. And then at the center in verse 8 is the making known so that the hearts of these believers might be encouraged. See, there's a beautiful craftsmanship in the text here, at the center of which is the encouragement of the Colossian church. And for this, Paul sent two men, Tychicus and Onesimus, and they serve as two witnesses, which establishes the testimony. So how does Paul describe each of these men? Tychicus is a beloved brother, which means that he's a Christian, dearly loved and esteemed by the apostle. Paul also calls him a faithful deacon. Whether or not Paul has the office of deacon in mind or has the more general idea of servant or minister in mind is certainly debatable. But if we understand the office of deacon as those who assist the apostles and elders and even as the training ground for ministry in some respects then perhaps we aren't too far off to think that Tychicus holds this official position in the church and serves as a deacon, as an assistant to Paul. Recall that Joshua was Moses' deacon and that Elisha served in a similar capacity under Elijah. So there's plenty of biblical precedent for such a pattern. And given the capabilities of deacons that we read about in Acts, particularly Stephen, then for Tychicus to be the bearer of the letter and of news of Paul's ministry is fitting. Paul also calls Tychicus a fellow slave, indicating his participation in the ministry, in his service to the Lord. Paul used the same exact term of Epaphras back in chapter 1 and verse 7. And Paul specifically states, "...whom I sent to you in him this," which appears to be a reference to the very letter that they're reading. 
So Paul sent Tychicus for the purpose to deliver this important piece of mail, as well as to make known in person the thing concerning Paul and his ministry and those ministering with him. And notice the obvious point. Paul's gospel ministry is a team effort. Paul isn't a lone ranger just going, you know, just doing his own thing. Given how driven Paul appears to be, how zealous he is for the Lord's work, sometimes he's portrayed as the, the personality type that wouldn't be able to get along with people because he's so goal-oriented. But what we read here indicates the exact opposite. He has close fellowship and deep relationships with these co-laborers for the kingdom of Christ. Even the description of Onesimus reflects this, as Paul calls him the faithful and beloved brother. Now, in the Lord's perfectly providential timing, Philemon was today's epistle. And most of the names Paul mentioned here in Colossians are also mentioned in Philemon. And it's very likely that Colossians, the epistle to the Colossians and Philemon were delivered at the same time. And in Philemon, we're given a bit more context about Onesimus, who was likely a slave of Philemon's that had run away or had sto- and probably had even stolen something from him and who's now been sent back by Paul to his master. Still more from verse 2 of that letter, it seems right to conclude that Philemon hosted the Colossian church in his home. Onesimus is a Colossian, even as Paul says, who is from you? And so these believers know who he is and are inevitably aware of what he'd done. But Paul's designation of him says nothing of slavery, of his past, but that he's Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother. He's faithful. He's trusty. Paul counts on Onesimus. He comes, he comes, uh, and he comes through for the apostle. And he, like Tychicus, he's also dearly loved and esteemed. Paul is bestowing high praise upon Onesimus, and perhaps the apostle is subtly telling the Colossian church that they should view Onesimus just as he does and receive him accordingly. Onesimus has Paul's full confidence and support which should go a long way with the saints in Colossae, indicating the kind of reception he should receive from them. Now, I want to draw your attention to a slightly subtle point, but one that's rich with meaning. These two men are sent to encourage or to comfort the Colossians. The verb that Paul uses here, which can literally mean to call to one side, is related to the term paraclete, which Jesus uses in reference to the Holy Spirit as the helper or the advocate or the comforter. And in what terms does Jesus describe the Holy Spirit, the helper, helper, the comforter, in John 14? But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And in John 16, Jesus tells disciples that he will send the helper, the Holy Spirit. Notice that Paul is imitating the ministry of Jesus by sending Tychicus and Onesimus. He can't be present with the Colossians, But these two men can, and they will come alongside these believers, guiding them in the truth and encouraging them and comforting their hearts in reporting what the Lord is doing through the apostles' ministry. See, Paul imitates Jesus in sending these two men, and Tychicus and Onesimus imitate the Holy Spirit in the comfort of heart there to bring to the saints in Colossae. And let's not miss the point that this comfort, this encouragement comes through real flesh and blood people. Not so unlike the gifts to the church from Jesus that Paul details in Ephesians 4 in addition to the Holy Spirit. 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Jesus came in the flesh and ministered. And the Holy Spirit likewise ministers through the flesh and blood saints of the church, not the least of which is for them to be encouraged in the faith. Well, moving on to verses 10 and 11, we encounter the first of four uses of the verb for greets or salutes. Greets you, Aristarchus, the fellow prisoner of me, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received a command. If he comes, hospitably receive him. And Jesus, the one being called Justice, these being out of the circumcision, these only being fellow workers in the kingdom of God, whatever came to pass to me, a comfort. Aristarchus, whose name apparently means the best ruler, is mentioned first, and Paul describes him as a fellow prisoner. It's interesting to note that for the Greek scholars or aspiring Greek scholars in our midst, how many words Paul uses that have the prefix soon, S-U-N in English, which is the preposition with, though typically translated fellow to make it easier to understand in English. But Paul's choice of words further undergirds that he is not doing this alone, but has all these others with him, laboring alongside of him and sharing in the various aspects of the work, and as in the case of Aristarchus, imprisonment. So what do we know about Aristarchus? Well, not surprisingly, he appears in the book of Acts. Chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and he's just refuted the idolatry of the city. And we read, when they, heard this very, when, they, uh, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with, confu- with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So Aristarchus is from Macedonia, which was a region just east of the, the boot heel of Italy, uh, across the Adria, in which the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica were located. In Acts 20, Aristarchus is mentioned again as accompanying Paul, and is more specifically referred to as a Thessalonian. Then at the beginning of chapter 27 of Acts, Luke records, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to set, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So he's not some random fellow, but shares in Paul's imprisonment in some form or fashion. The next person mentioned is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And yet again, for more context, go to the book of Acts. This Mark is most certainly the John Mark of Acts 12 and is the John that left Paul in chapter 13. And he's the Mark that we read about in Acts 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where they proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now recall that early on, Paul and Barnabas were the dynamic duo missionary team. And now Mark was a source for their separation. At this point in relation to the Colossians, Mark is chiefly identified in association with Barnabas. Now, the chronology of events and how much the Colossians knew of what had happened between Paul and Barnabas concerning Mark is difficult to determine. 
but a form of extra instruction has been conveyed to them, concerning whom you received a command, if he comes, hospitably receive him. So apparently the Colossians had already been given orders regarding Mark that they were to follow. He was to be treated well if he passed through Colossae. Then the third man listed in these verses is Jesus called Justice. Uh, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, but then he becomes known by his Latin name, Justice, which means just, right, righteous. Apparently many Jewish people used a second Greek or Latin name resembling their more traditional Jewish name, which appears to be the case here. Also, it isn't hard to imagine believers wanting the name of Jesus to be set apart and therefore taking a different name by which to be known. Now, notice again how Paul describes Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. These being out of the circumcision, these only being fellow workers in the kingdom of God, whatever came to pass to me, a comfort. See, by designating these three as coming out of the circumcision seems to be Paul's way of indicating that they were Jews and only these three Jewish brothers were fellow workers with him in the kingdom of God. But the fact that they were out of the circumcision should be implicit comfort to the Colossians, even as we've noted throughout our study of the letter, who are potentially being threatened by the Judaizers, the circumcision party. And so this is further application of Paul's theology back in chapter 3 and verse 11, describing the kingdom of heaven, where there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but the all and all is Christ. Paul has these three co-laborers in the kingdom that embody this reality even as they're participating in his ministry to the Gentiles. He's even specific to say that they've been a comfort to him in whatever has happened to him and whatever has come to pass. Interestingly enough, the word that Paul uses for comfort here is its only appearance in the New Testament. But the first three letters are the same as the word for paraclete. And so we might have Paul's subtle way of talking about the comfort from the Holy Spirit via these men, three men, that he's received. Well, again, we often think of Paul as this, this, this super apostle, this man of great faith, which he was. But it doesn't mean he didn't need the support of others, because clearly he did. Of course, comfort and encouragement aren't just needed for apostles, for those in official ministry, though it is, but for all believers alike, because... Isn't it often the case that we are easily prone to discouragement, whether in our own lives or when we look at the state of the church or society? When we're going through difficult times, we need sources of comfort. And again, Paul's clear to show that necessarily entails people, other believers, to come alongside of you in challenging or distressing circumstances. As a final point for this section, isn't it interesting that Paul mentions Barnabas by name? Why? Well, when we're first introduced him into Acts 4, we read this. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So, so Barnabas was a source of encouragement and comfort. And thus far, Tychicus and Onesimus are to encourage the Colossians. And Paul testifies to the comfort he's received from Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. They're, they're all Barnabases, all sons of encouragement after a fashion. Well, moving on to verses 12 to 13, Paul mentions Epaphras. And notice that he receives the most attention by the apostle. You know, Paul has more to say about him than anyone else. You may recall that Epaphras was mentioned by the apostle in chapter 1 and verse 7. 
as the beloved fellow slave through whom the Colossians had heard the gospel, the grace of God in truth. So what does Paul say here? Greets you, Epaphras, the one from you, a slave of Christ Jesus, always striving on behalf of you in the prayers, so that you stand mature and have having been fully persuaded in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has much pain on behalf of you and those in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. So what should we note? First of all, that like Onesimus, Epaphras is from Colossae. Second, he's a slave of Christ Jesus, an appellation that Paul uses in reference to his own ministry as well as those uh, who are also ministers. I think the ESV reads servants, uh, the New King James reads bondservant. And what's particularly interesting is the description here of how uh, the ministry of Epaphras mirrors Paul's. Mention of always, this echoes chapter 1 and verse 3. Wrestles or strives, 129. On your behalf in prayer, 1, 3 and 9. Mature, 128. Fully assured, chapter 2 and verse 2. In all God's will, chapter 1 and verse 9. See, these same terms are used in relation to Paul's own description of his ministry. This wrestling or striving, you may recall, is a term related to entering an athletic contest or games or gymnastic games. And Epaphras does this striving and wrestling, this agonizing in his prayers. This is the chief manner in which this fight, this contest, takes place on their behalf. That also indicates to us something about the nature of prayer, doesn't it? That it takes striving, that it takes wrestling, that we, like Jacob in Genesis 32, must wrestle with our covenant in God in prayer, seeking his blessings upon his promises for the sake of his people and kingdom. Epaphras is doing just that. And Paul even testifies that this slave of Christ Jesus has undergone great pain or suffering or hard work on behalf of the three congregations. The one in Colossae, the one in Laodicea, and the one in Hierapolis. These were the three largest cities of the Lycus Valley in Phrygia, Colossae being the least significant of the three. Hierapolis hosted healing cults, a temple to the emperor, and the reported entrance to the underworld. Laodicea was a wealthy commercial center and also hosted a medical practice. So, so Paul is giving a report to these believers about the hard work of battle, the physical labor in which Epaphras has been engaged on their behalf, which should be a source of encouragement to them. And notice that Epaphras has an entire region in his sights, in his labors for the kingdom. Also notice that he's not striving just to win converts, but that they would be able to stand mature which picks up on one of the themes we've noted throughout in our study of this letter, namely that of maturity. And not only does Epaphras want these believers to be mature, but fully persuaded regarding the will of God, which connects back to the opening chapter where Paul says, And on account of this from the day which we heard, have not stopped on your behalf praying and asking, so that you might be filled up to the knowledge of the will of Him in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And Paul details that will in what he goes on to teach about the redeeming and reconciling work of Christ, even as the gospel itself declares. Verse 14. Greetings to you from Luke the physician, the beloved, and Demas. And we know Luke's name well, the author of the gospel that bears his name, as well as Acts. He was a regular companion of Paul's. Perhaps he studied medicine in Laodicea, but that's, that's only a guess. 
Nothing more is said of Demas here. His name is also mentioned in Philemon and one other time in the New Testament in 2 Timothy where we read, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, someone who appeared to be faithful for a time apparently turned out not to be. And perhaps we're to subtly understand in the midst of the 12th year in the closing account that Demas is like a Judas Iscariot. Of course, the Colossians wouldn't have known that, just as the disciples had no idea until Judas actually betrayed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, in verses 15 and 17, Paul mentions two more names and gives some explicit commands. Verse 15, Greet the brothers in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church in their house. Paul is commanding greetings to be passed along from him to these Laodicean believers. Very likely, Nymphus was a man of some means since he's able to host the Laodicean church in his house. There's also some debate as to whether to translate the name as Nymphus or Nympha, a Nympha being a woman, and there's some pretty good arguments for that position as well. However, I'm, 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 tending, I'm leaning toward the New King James rendering here uh, with Nymphus, whose name apparently means bridegroom. Verse 16, And when may be read from you the epistle, do it, so that also in the Laodicean church it may be read, and the one out of Laodicea, so that also you may read. Paul is giving clear instructions for this epistle to, to the Colossians to be read to the Colossian church. And then once that happens, it's to be sent on to Laodicea for them to also read it. Still more, there's an epistle that the Laodiceans have that the Colossians are supposed to read. Now, there's some debate, debate as to whether or not there's a lost letter of Paul somewhere. Uh, and that's possible, though it doesn't have any bearing on Holy Scripture since, um, since we have preserved for us what the Holy Spirit wants us to read. But another theory that seems as good as any is that the letter that the Laodicean church has is what we call Ephesians, since it is commonly understood that it was a circular letter to be distributed around a number of churches. It's also interesting to note how similar Ephesians and Colossians are in their content, though Ephesians tends to be more general after a fashion and the Colossian, and the Colossian letter more specific, indicating the different audiences of the initial and primary recipients. Then verse 17, where Paul gives two imperatives. And say to Archippus, Behold the ministry which you received in the Lord, so that you may fulfill it. These commands to say and behold carry a measure of weight from the apostle, and Archippus may very well be the pastor. And so Paul is giving this urgent reminder to him regarding the ministry he's received in the Lord. The word for ministry is the same is of the same family as deacon, is even the same term used in Acts 6, 1 and verse, 6, 6 verse 1 and verse 4 of the ministry and the ministry of the word, can refer to the office of deacon and may carry some of, these, some of those connotations here. Nevertheless, Archippus has a job to do, and Paul impresses upon him the need for him to fulfill it. This verb fulfill or fill up has been used on three occasions already by Paul in this letter. In chapter 1 and verse 9, mentioned a few minutes ago, so that you might be filled up to the knowledge of the will of him in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 125, of which I became a minister, a deacon, according to the stewardship of God, the one having been given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And then in 210, in relation to what Christ accomplished, and you are in him, having been fulfilled, who is the head of all rule and authority. So in, in the vein of the theology the apostle has already established, he's calling upon Archippus to continue to thoroughly engage in his ministry of fulfillment. 
which is done through service, particularly as relates to the Word of God. The ministry of Jesus continues through the Holy Spirit, working through the church, further fulfilling the ministry of Christ to the ends of the earth, which is certainly being engaged in by his representatives, the ministers of word and sacrament. Then finally, in verse 18, Paul records, The greeting is the hand of mine, of Paul. Remember the chains of me. The grace be with you. Paul's final line seems uh, more abrupt than usual, possibly indicating the difficulty of his imprisonment, the chains that bind him. Someone else would have acted as Paul's amanuensis, uh, his secretary for the letter. But this final greeting he writes himself, which kind of also acts as his official seal of approval upon the letter. And the final command he gives is, Remember, remember my chains. And why should the Colossians remember in order to pray for him and the ministry of the gospel in which he's engaged and for which he's been imprisoned. Paul's chains and ministry go hand in hand, it seems, and to remember can even mean to mention, further supporting the implicit command for them to pray on his behalf, which is fitting. Now, as as noted at the outset, Paul ends his letter where he began with grace. And arguably the whole letter imparts grace, as do these final greetings as Paul has been providing word after word of encouragement. And, and let's, let's think about something that's, that's subtly communicated to us as a point for further application. That communication in the church and among believers is important. That cooperation among Christians is necessary for the strengthening of faith and the body of believers. We should be exchanging communications with one another. And as the globe is practically connected now via the Internet, this tool can be utilized all the more for the purposes of Christ's church and His kingdom. You know, it's a remarkable thing that within a few minutes we can know of something happening with a brother or sister in the Lord hundreds of miles away or on the other side of the globe and can be praying for them within moments and even enlist other people, other believers to be praying for them shortly after that. And such communication and more communication between believers will serve to further galvanize our faith and resolve in the work for Christ. When we hear of how the Lord is working in other churches, in other states, or in other nations, when we receive ports from various ministries and missionaries, it's a point of encouragement and an inevitable bolstering of faith. Furthermore, consider the camaraderie for ministry that Paul evidences. Mention was made of this already, but just just think about the fact that you have Paul, Luke, and Mark all working together, all overlapping in their fellowship with one another. And at the end of Peter's letter, we find out that Mark was also with him. So Mark was with Paul, Barnabas, and Peter and had acquaintance with, with Luke. As one scholar points out, Luke, Mark, and Paul wrote over 60% of the New Testament. And here they are in the same place at the same time. They weren't strangers to one another. They knew each other and took opportunities to be together over the course of their respective ministries, and in this particular case with Paul, likely in Ephesus. Again, we're presented here with a church that, that communicates, that engages in this kind of fellowship and mutual encouragement. And this further engenders maturity. So we should seek to do the same, even as we continue to give ourselves to pursuing the will of God as it is manifest in His Word. 
And let us seek to be an encouragement to one another in this faith, in this life and calling as saints, striving in prayer for one another and for the greater work of Christ's kingdom in the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And let us eagerly give ourselves to the hard but rewarding labor of the gospel, declaring and living out the life from above, the life of redemption and reconciliation of all things on earth and in heaven, which has been achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ and given to us in His grace. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for Paul's letter to the Colossians for the past weeks and months for our study in it. And we thank you for these closing words today. And may they ever, further, may they further impress upon us the glory of the gospel, what you've called us to, who you've called us to be in Christ our Savior and King. Indeed, we pray that we would be more steadfast in prayer, that we would be quick to encourage, encourage one another through the days and weeks and months that are ahead of us in service to you. Indeed, may we bring honor and glory to you in our lives lived to lived before you and for your sake. Direct us and keep us, we ask, in your word, as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.